Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. This is Jasmine. She is Nemo. And you are now in episode two of season two. We hope you enjoyed our first episode, which talked about community engagement. Nemo, how are you doing today? I'm well. Um, it's a Monday. Not that y'all care, but this is when Jasmine and I usually meet, which just proves our dedication. After working tirelessly on a Monday, we make time every week to make sure that we can bring you the best podcast possible. So I'm well because of that. Um, and otherwise, you know, just living, trying to adjust to this season and time change. What did Kelly say? She said, all my friends, everybody that I know is thriving in abundance, effortlessly. And so that's what, we're trying, that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about most things involving housing, um, housing affordability, housing costs, the difficulty of staying in your home the difficulty of affording a home, kind of renter assistance programs, and the kind of basis for the episode is the COVID-19 pandemic and how that had a huge impact on workers, on compensation, on housing prices, and on evictions as well. Talk to us about that a little bit more, Nemo. Yeah, so if we can all think back to March 13, 2020, a lot of uh, jurisdictions immediately, just given the historic nature of covid put into place eviction moratoriums that were locally based. However, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, where a lot of uh, local governments and state governments went to their COVID guidance, didn't put out an eviction moratorium until around September 2020. And that basically means that uh, landlords cannot evict um, tenants based on their inability to pay, given the rise in unemployment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so this eviction moratorium by the CDC went through a lot of different versions, um, and it was not necessarily consistent in how states and local governments interpreted it. Um, and so uh, this was also met with historic funding for renter relief programs um, that really jumped off earlier this year, um, but uh, really it all came to a head in October when the CDC lifted their eviction moratorium. Um, some states still had their own, such as New York, New Jersey, DC, California, and Minnesota. Um, but again, it's not consistent from state to state. They kind of decide what that process looks like. So in addition to talking about housing policy broadly, as Jasmine mentioned, and how it is, how people are able to afford, afford housing in this country, um, we're gonna uh, then go over what that looks like specifically during COVID. So what is the current status on evictions? How many residents are or not paying rent? Because we know it's early in the pandemic, lots of people, especially um, low wage or hourly employees were kind of laid off from their positions and you need money to pay your rent. So um, what we're looking at now is data from Harvard University's uh, Joint Center for Housing Studies, and they have a state of the nation's housing report that comes out every year. And so for the first quarter, which is January through March of 2021, many residents were still not paying rent. Um, a survey found that more than 27 percent of uh, non-institutional rental property owners. So that means not a university, not a, a hospital that's like doing a kind of subsidized housing. Um, had tenants who could not or did not pay their rent in September 2020. By February 2021, two thirds of those same landlords still reported at least $5,000 in rental loss income during the pandemic. 
most of these renters um, were in smaller buildings, buildings with two to four, two to four units, like a walk-up building uh, that's a duplex or a quadplex. As we're coming out of the pandemic, nearly two-thirds of households are still not able to pay rent either by choice or by inability in early 2021. And so it's having a really big impact on landlords, particularly smaller landlords who are not a huge institution that owns properties all over the country, for example. I thought it was interesting how just from the data you could see comparing uh, September 2020 to February 2021. I remember certain periods of 2020 being like hopeful, like, oh, we're going to get this, we're going to get a vaccine, we're going to, things are going to go back to normal. We just were like hoping things were just going to keep getting back to normal. But I think just seeing how that, that, how that didn't happen and how things only really got worse for people um, in terms of being able to afford their homes and being able to afford where they live. Um, I am curious uh, what some of that looked like on an average basis before COVID of people being able to afford rent. Yeah, it's interesting because I was trying to find out the same thing, right? How many people were evicted prior to March 2020? How many tenants on average uh, every year do not pay a full percentage of their rent? And it was very hard to find the information. It appeared to me, and as someone who like works in the housing space, I'm aware that that was not data that was necessarily collected on a national level. Individual landlords, of course, know how many percentage of their tenants in their buildings pay a portion or not a full amount of their rents and how many tenants they're evicting, but that day there wasn't national surveys conducted among landlords to figure out on average how many people didn't pay rent. And so it was difficult to draw a comparison pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, unfortunately. So a big piece of, you know, not paying rent um, are wages because you need money, like I said, to pay rent. And so I'm going to try to make this conversation as simple as possible because I don't want to get too much into the economics of it all. But just to put things kind of in perspective, you need money to pay rent. So that's a basis, right? You need money to go grocery shopping. You need money to eat. And so how do you make money? You work. Whether you do it legally or illegally, you work to make money. And so- Are you part of 9 to 5 LLC Twitter, Jasmine? <laughs> <laughs> they would be judging you right now. I don't, none of my friends got 9 to 5. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> As a side, I do, I am in a 9 to 5 and listen- Stability, that's all I can say. So a conversation that's really important to have when we're talking about wages are how much wages have changed as the cost of things have changed, right? Because we know with inflation, we know with just growth and demand, prices of gasoline are no longer 50 cents a gallon. They're up to $3 in, in extra change. So to zoom in, I'm gonna look at some data that goes from 1950 to 2020. And this data comes from the Economic Policy Institute. And all of these links, of course, will be in the show notes. And so we're going to look at wage gaps between workers' compensation and company productivity. And so by productivity, we're measuring gross domestic product um, for the nation, really. And so what we see is from 1950 to about 1980, as GDP increased, as companies who produce goods, produce more goods and sold more goods, as companies that conducted services, as they cleaned more homes and issued more contracts, as they produced more research papers and sold more research papers, workers' compensation typically grew at the same rate. So between that time period, 1950 to 1980, productivity increased 118%. And at that same time period, compensation increased 107%. So it basically doubled, right? So as we double our productivity, we double our pay to our employees. We're reinvesting the revenue that we've gained from selling all these extra products or selling all these extra services back into our employees. So 
after 1980, there was a shift. And we see the range between productivity and compensation shift. And so productivity continues to rise, growing 61% over that time period. And we see compensation only rising 17.5%. So productivity grew by about two-thirds, but compensation only grew by less than 20%. And so the, what that is saying is companies continue to produce more. So we're still tracking positively in our pro production, more goods, more services. But and now employers are not investing that additional revenue back into the employees. They're keeping it in profits and distributing it to shareholders that they're a publicly traded company, or they're putting it in CEO's pockets or senior management pockets. And so this highlights how difficult it is for individuals to improve their income right you they always say work hard and you'll be compensated for it but that's that is not necessarily the case and we can see that um with this data when i saw this um which i actually hadn't really seen until we were doing research for this episode i think i maybe heard about it but i think seeing the breakout uh, between the two different time periods. When I think about what was going on in the country in 1979 and what 2020 looks like, I think we have outsourced a lot of our production. So thinking about how that's still measured, and I'm curious what this looks like in other countries, if their wages are on track with what they produce um, and if it still grows in that way it's really just astonishing how, like Jasmine said, it hasn't grown. Um, you're doing more. I think even in some professional fields, there's conversations around, there's never, there's always going to be a need to have more staff. People are constantly doing three jobs and they're one person. And that's just become the norm. We're just doing more and more, um, but not being compensated for it. So I talked about wages and how they've been kind of flat basically um for the past 60 years and so with 40 years so we are going to now look at how other things have changed and mainly since it's a housing episode how wages compared to rent and compared to home prices and so there's a great study um conducted and links will be in the show notes but it looks at u.s census and american community survey data and we need to have an episode nemo on tools planning tools that people can use to kind of do studies on their own so the the census and the community survey are national data collection pieces that assess everything from housing prices to number of times you rode the bus in a week <laughs> to get to work literally yeah, we have a pretty long list for episodes this season. We've truly outdone ourselves, um, but we're ambitious, but that is on the list. So we may, we might get to that sooner than later. So this data is basically comparing the growth rate of home prices, household incomes, and median rents nationwide. So here we go. So from 1960 to 2017, the median home price grew 121%. So you take the median home price, 1960, multiply by 1.2, you get that number. The growth rate of median rent increased 72%, but the growth rate of median household income only increased 29%. So to put that in perspective, your income grew 29%, but the cost of a home grew 121% and your monthly rent grew 72%. This is not to say um, that other things haven't also increased. Groceries, childcare, education. We already know how much college has grown significantly over the years. So this is just to pull out the, the narrative here is to say that Wages have been stagnant and flat in comparison to all of life's other expenses, mainly housing. And what does that mean for someone who's looking to afford a place to rent or a place to own a home if the cost of housing and rent is far surpassing the growth of someone's income? And that's a really scary thing to look at. The way I kind of look at this graph is like the median house price basically looks like a mountain 
and the median gross rent is like a really steep hill, but your income is the valley. <laughs> it's the lake. It's almost below sea level. It's just down there at the bottom. Um, and you're going to have to climb that mountain if you want to be able to afford what I think has been sold to us as the American dream of affording home ownership. Um, not to say that it's not attainable or that it's not possible, but it's not as easy as it was in 1960, 1970, and 1980, when all of those three points being median house price, median gross rent, and median household income were not as far apart. The gap between those, um, between the 60s and 70s and present day, have only spread apart um, even further. Um, and so looking at the country, uh, the Midwest is the most affordable region based on this data. And so that includes Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Nebraska, North Dakota, Wisconsin, those states. Um, sorry if I left anybody out. <laughs> um, and the growth rate of their median home prices from 1960 to 2017 was at an 82% growth rate. And their um, median rent per month increased by 37%. And the growth rate of median household income increased by 29%. And so still you can see the growth rate between home prices, rent, and uh, median household income. There's still a gap. Ne neither of those items are growing at the same rate. Um, and then when you go over to the Northeast, whew, <laughs> just take a breath. <laughs> that includes Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont are still quite expensive. So the growth rate just from the Midwest we talked about was 82%. The growth rate from 1960 to 2017 for the Northeast was 159%, where the growth rate of median rent was at 84% and the growth rate of median household income was at 38%. So how is home price, how are home prices growing by 159%, but income only grew by 38? It's like, how does one even begin to close that gap or even rationalize it. Yeah, and I think Nemo, the point that you bring up is difficult to afford the American dream. So I think about my grandparents in 1970, they were about, they're about 40 years old and um, they had already owned a house when they were 30 years old, they were building their second house. Um, and I look at that and I'm like, look at me at 25 struggling, just, just trying to make it through. Yet I'm more educated, right? Like I, I have two, I have advanced degrees. Um, I'm not doing physical labor. I don't work in a blue collar position. Yet I still feel like I'm in a struggle position that I feel if wages would have increased, you know, more consistently like they were doing um, prior to 1980, then I would be in a much better place uh, with my earnings that I make. So that's a bit frustrating and sad. I also just want to say this is interesting because it doesn't get at what people are doing to um, purchase their homes, right? Because we know people are still buying homes every time you uh, see a house for sale, particularly in New Jersey, there's a line of people outside looking to buy them, right? And so what sacrifices are people making so that they can eventually afford a home or even afford their rent? Maybe people are living with roommates unnecessarily. Maybe people are uh, staying at home longer, like living with their parents longer so they can save money to eventually buy a house. Maybe people are buying houses with people that they're not um, you know, that's not their partner. Maybe they're buying it with their friend or their cousin. So to get into, so we talked about wages. We talked about cost of housing. So now we're going to go a little bit more into housing costs and how um, they might have changed. And so let's look at for rent housing because most people that are in our age bracket are typically renters. And so... Rents in professionally managed buildings, those are buildings that are like probably the high rises, not necessarily ones with like a doorman or something, but a high rise with an elevator, maybe has a rooftop garden, something nice. Um, they resumed their rise in early 2021. So during 2020, we saw a lot of rent concessions being made because 
people were having difficulty paying rent rents were being dropped in, in major areas so now we're starting to see those rents um go back up again uh, in 2019 the average annual increase in rent was about 2.7 percent and that has been pretty stagnant every year think about it if you live in an apartment when your lease is time to renew they always go up they never go down they never give you the same rate they always go up and so that's just kind of a pattern the for sale housing so the single family home or a, a condo or a townhouse has grown um a lot and so when we look at the sales of existing homes those are homes that are already been built they're up 5.6 percent from 2020 the single family homes were the highest up 6.3 percent um condos and kind of the townhouses were really strong um as well and so we're seeing that for sale homes are growing at an average around 5.6 percent and that's different across the region so the south is growing at about 7.4 percent the midwest 6.4 percent the west only 2.7 percent and the northeast 1.4 percent i think that west and northeast numbers being so low is representative of the fact that the housing costs are already so high, right? Like a two bedroom, three bath is already 600,000. So how much higher can it really go, you know, in New Jersey or in, you know, outside of Maryland, outside of DC in Maryland. And so this gets us to kind of the basis of the conversation. What are wages? How have wages grown with housing? And how are housing costs growing? And then we wanna get into the conversation of affordability. So Nemo, just as a as a general topic, when you hear affordable housing or housing affordability or the housing affordability crisis, what kind of things come to mind for you? Honestly, I think a lot about what kind of gets people to that place, which is kind of what we've been talking about. Um, and honestly, sadly, I get pretty disillusioned pretty fast um, because it seems like a ongoing issue in this country that nobody has really been able to solve. Um, and uh, we're constantly chasing or finding ways to make affordable housing more affordable. Getting at the root of the question, is affordable housing that currently exists, is it actually affordable? And what metrics are we using to determine what someone should be able to pay? We've talked about wages not going up. We've talked about other things that people need to survive, only increasing in price. Is income truly the measure and the percent that we measure? We talk about area median income, um, meaning the marker in a place where people can pay either above that amount or below that amount. Um, but is that what we really should be using? Because there could be a lot of people above what is defined as area median income that still have a significant amount of burdens that uh, impact their lives um, that doesn't necessarily get broken down into a number. Um, and so I think really opening up programs and affordability to people beyond just a metric is, is important moving forward. So how do we measure affordable housing, right? That's something that you brought up, Nemo's. What does it mean for something to be affordable? So I think about it in a general term, right? If you go to buy shoes, you the shoes are affordable to you, right? It's affordable to your income, your earning. You don't typically buy things that you can't afford. Um, so how much, what is your willingness to pay for a pair of shoes, your willingness to pay for a cup of coffee, et cetera, et cetera? So the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development defines um, affordability as 30% of your household income. And so you are cost burden or um, your housing costs are a burden onto you. We use the term house poor in my neighborhood to describe uh, someone who's spending more than 30% of their income on housing costs. Um, and they define severely rent burden or severely house burdened if you're paying more than 50% of your income on rent. This has kind of been the standard for measuring affordability. Um, and so this is the state of the nation's housing report in 2018 at Harvard paper showed that the percentage of U.S. households who were cost burdened was declining. 
at that time, 31% of all U.S. households um, were cost burdened and renters made up the bulk of that. So 47.5% of all renters compared to 22.5% of all homeowners were cost burdened using that 30% rule. So the idea is that, okay, if you make $100,000 a year, you'd be spending 30,000 of it every year on housing. And that meant that that housing was affordable to you. You could afford to save, buy groceries, go out with your friends, go on vacation, all that stuff. Um, Another kind of tool that we use to measure affordability is the price to income ratio. And that really comes into um, home ownership. So if the 30% rule is really applicable for renters, then the price to income ratio is really applicable for house for homeowners. And basically it's saying that um, it's a ratio of the median home price in an area to the median annual household income in that area. So home price, median home price divided by median household income. Um, and so typically realtors, the people who buy and sell properties, use a ratio of 2.6. Um, and so the idea is that if you're, if the median household income for an area is $50,000, then the median home price should be somewhere around $130,000. However, this is not the case. In 2019, only 10 United States metro areas had a price to income ratio of 2.6. The national price to income was 4.4, meaning that the median home price in an area was 4.4 times the median uh, household income for that same area. Um, and that to me is troubling. It's, it's a measure of saying, look, rent is too high, homes cost too much, and we don't make enough money, literally. Yeah, I know I've personally found myself over that 30% many a times living in pretty expensive cities in this country. But it's like, I have to do it. I have to find a place to live. Um, Also being a a woman um, and maybe wanting certain uh, qualities in the neighborhood that I live in for my own sense of safety. um, That also increases the, where I may want to live. I may want to live somewhere that has that a building that has security um, a building that's walkable to make sure that I can get to um, that I can get to places without having to travel too far at night if I'm not driving or if I'm taking public transportation. Um, and so factoring in those things, it's easy to get above that 30%. And I think we normalize it um, and uh, because we have to, there's no choice. Um, and I think that 30% easily turns to 50 for a lot of people um, and that impacts their other areas and their quality of life. Yeah, and that's a big criticism of the 30% kind of rule is that it doesn't take into account the kind of trade-offs people might make, right? So they may choose to live in a less safe neighborhood. They may choose to live in an older, um, less efficient building. They may choose to live far from their work or their friends or their family just so that their cost for housing are cheaper. Um, and what kind of, how does that impact their social life has that impact their mental state um and really has that impact our society really when people are living in the margins just to save dollars on on housing and so we've given pretty good background here as to what that affordability crisis is when you hear that kind of in the news and in the media and so now we want to get into what is being done to help with the affordability crisis and what are kind of our ideas about those recommendations? Yeah, so now we're moving into the portion of the episode where, as Jasmine mentioned, what's being done? Um, we gave some examples around people paying over 30%, but those people may still be able to pay. But what does it look like when a true crisis or emergency situation happens? Um, and so just briefly, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has a few different versions of assistance for renters or renters assistance programs that exist. Now, something to note is that all of these programs require an onus on the person struggling still. So they have to apply, they have to seek out the information, they have to qualify. 
Um, so someone may be able to do that by using HUD's portal to search for privately owned apartments that have reduced rents. That person has to specifically contact that apartment management office. And then public housing, which is competitive as there's a great need and demand for it in this country. Public housing offers affordable apartments for lower income families, older adults, and people with disabilities. And again, they have to then contact the public housing agency in their jurisdiction to see if they qualify. And then there's voucher programs. The Housing Choice Voucher Program, also known as Section 8, can pay a portion or all of the household's rent. And that also includes reaching out to a public housing agency, many of which I think we talked about last season, some of the barriers to, um, to qualifying, some of the wait list, um, and some of the lengths of time that it takes to access these programs. And so then when we think about renter assistance programs during COVID, which really shed a light on what does it look like? What happens when people cannot afford their rent in a situation of crisis and in an emergency? And it really became a broader public health issue, especially during COVID. The CDC referenced the National Low Income Housing Coalition. They had a report titled Out of Reach, The High Cost of Housing. And that explained that the, how, the high cost of housing made it specifically difficult for individuals who have experienced a drop in income, likely due to being laid off or unemployed during the pandemic, that they were vulnerable to being evicted. Um, and uh, what we see with eviction and COVID is that that can affect public health if someone then has to move in with someone that they, uh, someone that they, a family member, um, or potentially go to a homeless shelter because that limits their ability to quarantine, isolate, and practice social distancing, which put them at higher risk for COVID. The runner assistance programs are always interesting to me because of what you said, like it puts the onus on um, the renter to find uh, those programs and apply. And there's just a shortage of it. The number of people who need assistance, the number of people the number of units available for people with assistance is just difficult. Even at the national median, sorry, the national minimum wage is still $7.25. And even less than that, if you work in a tip tipping industry. Um, so the gap between that is, is so much. And I even looked at uh, what the um, median and medium, oh my gosh, median and minimum, what the minimum wages were for a lot of states in 2021, and a lot of them still kind of hover between 10 to $15, if you're lucky. Um, some are even still at $9, um, uh, depending on the size of the employer or if there's benefits or lack of benefits. Um, so where does that extra income come from? That report out of reach that I mentioned that talks about the amount of hours that someone would need to work um, to make up the gap. And a lot of that ranged between uh, 70 to 80 hours plus a week to be able to afford a two bedroom. Normally it's pretty standard that people work 40 hours a week. So to say that someone would have to work 70 or 80 hours a week just to afford a two bedroom apartment um, is pretty intense. Yeah, I can't imagine um, that as a reality. The programs that you mentioned, Nemo, do you have any examples of them that are more on the supply side to kind of increase the production of affordable housing? Yeah, so I can't necessarily, I mean, I know one that comes to mind is like the Housing Production Trust Fund and that there's some for those on the federal level and some on the local level where jurisdictions will dedicate a certain amount of their funding to produce more affordable housing in um in their jurisdiction. Um, I also think about the low-income housing tax credit, um, which I think, again, I think we talked about in another episode um, that gives uh, developers uh, different tax breaks to you know, kind of promise that they're gonna provide low-income housing. Um, but that kind of goes into how low-income and how affordability is defined and if it really reaches um, some of those populations. Um, and so I wanted to get into exactly how uh, some of the crisis that I described was addressed during COVID. 
Um, and so the Center for Disease Control um, really outlined an order to put a halt on evicting uh, residents. So known as their eviction moratorium that took effect September 4th, 2020. And uh, that's a pretty significant amount of time after COVID, but a lot of jurisdictions took it upon themselves to make sure that their residents would not be evicted during COVID. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later. So um, after that September 2020 timeframe, um, that initially got extended to December 31st, 2020, um, and then they extended it through January, um, and then President Biden extended it further through the spring and summer months um, until we get to July, where they announced the uh, Emergency Rental Assistance, or ERA, that provided a total of $46.5 billion for that emergency rental assistance. And so even though in January, the initial, sorry, in July, that initial eviction moratorium lapsed, uh, the Center for Disease Control, CDC, announced that they would provide a limited moratorium for renters and communities that had a specific surge in COVID cases. But when we think back to July, Delta was doing his thing. Like people were in pretty bad situations. So that extension covered about 80% of the country um, and 90% of renters. So people still kind of were given a little bit more time, at least until October of this year to kind of be okay. Um, and I mentioned earlier, really the public health aspect of, um, of eviction moratoriums and why it's important as we combat the coronavirus. And so there was a study done um, that I found through NPR that looked at 27 out of 43 states, including the District of Columbia, that ended eviction moratoriums. And I'm saying that they ended them prematurely. They ended them in summer 2020. So just a few months after COVID started, they were like, okay, y'all are good. And then that's really when the CDC stepped in and said, no, there's an issue. Uh, if people are being kicked out of their homes during this pandemic, that's still thriving in communities. And so what the study found is that the places that ended their eviction moratoriums pretty early in summer 2020 resulted in 365,000 and 502,000 excess coronavirus deaths. Oh, sorry, coronavirus cases and then around 10,000 in excess deaths. So in total, around 433,000 cases and around 10,000 additional deaths were caused by in these jurisdictions that ended their uh, that ended their moratoriums. What, like I'm saying, is they ended it prematurely, just a few months after COVID started. And so, just another point on that is that the COVID mortality in those states that lifted the moratorium was 1.6 times higher than states who kept their moratoriums for at least seven additional weeks. And then that gap grew by the mortality increasing 5.6 times uh, for states who kept their moratorium for at least six weeks longer. Um, and so really that study found that it's difficult to social distance and shelter if you don't have a place to live. So just by a result of kicking people out of their homes forces the spread of COVID even more. In thinking about the homeless population during COVID, I know a lot of cities opted to use um, hotels which were struggling during the pandemic and so places like the Salvation Army and the Red Cross would kind of lease out a whole hotel and house um, persons without homes in them so that they weren't living on the the streets and kind of risking the contraction and the spread of coronavirus as well and so I thought when I learned about that in LA and in New York I thought that was an amazing idea um, because it still gave the hotel revenue right they're getting paid to the Salvation Army as opposed to you know nightly residents um, and then it provided housing for a population that during a infectious disease and a, a spreadable virus would have been kind of the first people to be exposed by it. and I thought that was an amazing program and I hope yeah it's really uh and I think with hotels you can still kind of provide that social distancing and separation um for people who may be experiencing homelessness um and so I mentioned earlier that during this period of great crisis there was about uh 48.5 billion dollars that became available 
through emergency rental assistance. Um, and so we're going to just take a quick look at Minnesota, which is a program that is that currently um, still has an eviction moratorium. Nope, a lot of places have ended it. Um, and so Minnesota is one of the places that still have it available. Um, and so their program um, is known as Rent Minnesota um, COVID Assistance. And so in the first round of the relief package, um, there was about 25 billion available to jurisdictions across the country. Minnesota received about 375 million from the federal government. And uh, um, that became available to populations and counties with populations over 200,000. There was some limitations on the funding that the assistance, and just as a note, each, there's about 505 emergency rental assistance programs in the country. And so some are county level, some are state level. Um, Minnesota is one with just an example. And so there, this is a pretty good summary of what those emergency rental assistance programs look like in other jurisdictions. And so people were able to apply for rent up to three months at a time for up to 18 months. And the assistance is for low-income households at or below 80% of area median income. So for instance, in the metropolitan Twin Cities area in Minnesota, um, a one-person household would qualify for this if their income was below $54,950, so about $55,000. And if they are a four-person household, they will qualify if their household income is below $78,000, just for context. Um, and there was a priority for households below 50% AMI and households that have been unemployed for 90 days. So people could apply for this program, even if they were in that income bracket, but maybe they still had a job, but there was a priority for people who had been unemployed, likely as a result of COVID. And so this program, the timeline, um, a lot of places were expecting the funding to be spent by September 30th, 2021. And jurisdictions had a use or lose deadline of December 31st, 2021 of this year. Um, and so how is it going? Um, some of you may have seen news articles around the summer that a lot of jurisdictions were having trouble getting out the funding for this emergency rental assistance program. And there are several reasons people maybe were, weren't thinking that they needed, Nate, they needed the funding. Maybe they still had internal extensions between their landlords or their, uh, their property management companies. Um, and so back in at the end of June, Minnesota had only distributed about 7% of their funding. Um, and, but that was seen a, of an increase in June. Most states were able to double in June and really get it going. Um, at that time, Texas and Virginia were in the lead. They had spent about a third of their funds and New York had only distributed about 1%. How much of that Nemo could be because of the complexity of the way you have to apply? You know, if it's a very, if it even appears to be a very bureaucratic system, maybe residents are just like, you know, I am in need, but I don't know how to find it. I don't know how to apply. I don't know what documentation I need. How much of that do you think played into, played into the lack of, or the low numbers of distribution? Yeah, so I do think it was an extra step um, for some people in terms of figuring it out, figuring out exactly what they needed and what was eligible. Um, I even, I just described, you know, some of the income eligibility. I know people had to provide, um, their tax documentation from, uh, 2020, um, and, uh, uh you know, maybe feeling like, oh, I'm maybe not going to get it. Um, what happens if my application is pending? And so I do think, it is an additional step. And I think what made the funding increase is once uh, internal property management offices and landlords started saying like, hey, if you qualify for this program and you are not applying, then you could be subject to your lease being terminated. Um, and so that really, I think pushed, it really took an effort on all sides to really push for people to apply for the funding that was available. Once they saw, oh, if I don't have this, there's gonna be a problem. I also know that just um, locally where I am, they also had landlord assistance programs. So maybe your tenant didn't actually qualify for all of these things, but they still were impacted by COVID, right? And they still might have lost revenue from 
COVID. And so they weren't able to pay their rent. So the landlord could also apply for they had like landlord assistance programs where you could apply as a landlord if you had demonstrated that you lost rent um, during the pandemic. And I thought that was amazing and helpful for especially small landlords who don't have necessarily the capacity to. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and I think present day, we're doing pretty good as we look at Minnesota as an example. And we'll have in the show notes, you can actually see the national tracker um, for how your state or jurisdiction may be doing in terms of spending their funding. Um, and so as of November, 2021, um, Minnesota had spent 70% of their funds and projecting 70, 77% to be spent. Um, and uh, 66% of applicants identified as black um, or indigenous or people of color. Um, and so I, I think as we think about the wage gap in this country um, from a racial equity standpoint, who is being affected by um, a lack of uh, eviction moratorium programs and who is, being who is being affected by housing stability in general? Yeah, and that point about the demographics of people who are applying directly relates to um, the percentage of households or the, the households who were falling behind on their rent or mortgage payments. And so about uh, 30% of households that had been um, struggling to make their rent payment were black households and about 20% of them were Hispanic households. And so that's at the national level. So that just, you know, continues Nemo's point about what was going on in Minnesota. Nemo, do you have any recommendations for how do we address housing mm -hmm. affordability? What are we doing? What are we trying to do besides direct payments to tenants and direct payments to landlords to kind of address affordability? Yeah, I think there's a lot of hope in uh, reinvigorated efforts being done to address housing affordability um, and what's being done for housing assistance. Um, so I'm going to just run through a few that the National Low Income Housing uh, Coalition mentioned, um, and a lot of them involve, you know, federal level policies. Um, so some of the ones that I found to be interesting um, was jurisdictions implementing more permanent emergency rental assistance programs. Um, and I thought about, okay, well, how does that become successful? Like Jasmine mentioned, how do we reduce barriers? Um, how do we make documentation as simple as possible? Um, and, uh, you know, how do we include landlords in the process too, making sure that a lack of landlord participation doesn't stop someone from getting access? Um, also, what I thought was interesting is the fair cloth amendment. Um, the way that bill currently stands is that there's a limit on the construction of new public housing units um, and uh, uh, public housing agencies are prohibited from using any HUD capital or operating funds to construct public housing units. So we've talked about the gap in income over the last 40 years um, and the increase in rent and housing costs, yet we're not allowed to build anymore like it's only growing. And so that was just wild. And so there's legislation out there to repeal that act. Um, and there's also the housing is infrastructure act, um, which would allocate 70 billion to make necessary improvements to the public housing capital needs for the public housing that we currently have. As I just mentioned, we can't build anything new. Um, all, however, sadly, 387 million was originally included in the Biden infrastructure bill became before it became the bipartisan package for housing schools and buildings so some of that would have been able to be used for public housing, but it got scrapped so it's not included and that's why there's this new act to help out. Um, and then there's also the National Housing Stabilization Fund that would provide emergency assistance, as I mentioned, for some of the more emergency um, financial situations, and then also universal rental assistance, um, which would fully fund the Housing Choice Voucher Program or Section 8, as I mentioned earlier, um, which may be able to address some of the backlogs and um, long wait times to um, address these programs. And so I think, you know, thinking about some of these recommendations, it would be great if all these things could happen. Um, but there's a lot to it. And it shows really the complexities that vary from state to state, from town to town, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, 
it's not necessarily about what programs exist or what new programs can be developed. That list is nonstop. I even just listed off a couple briefly. Um, but how do we make less families even need or reliant on assistance programs to begin with, where some of these programs may not be forever. Some of these programs funding may not be consistent as we shift from administration to administration. Um, and so even Minnesota, for instance, their program ends or their eviction moratorium ends June, 2022. So maybe in a little, about six months, I scourged their website, looked for as much information as I could. I didn't see a plan. What happens to those residents who still do not have their rent, their back rent paid from the emergency rental assistance programs? We don't know. Sadly, homelessness could even be in their future. But I think as we really bring it back to what we talked about in the beginning of this episode, what are we doing about wages, living wages, the jobs people have, and how people can comfortably afford a quality of life? As someone that works in, in housing and affordable housing, this is all very disheartening to me, right? Like, I really want us to begin to have those conversations about wages and so that we don't need as many assistance programs. I'm, I'm fully for you know, self-functioning individuals, individuals who are willing and able if they have the, you know, tenacity and the autonomy to do on their own, then they should be able to do on their own. But we're not giving people, honestly, the salaries that they need. And so whatever policies we were getting into between 1948 and 1980, we need to circle back to those so that as employees contribute to productivity for their organizations, they're able to reap the benefits from the additional revenue. And that for me is my biggest takeaway. Yeah, I think we definitely need a follow-up episode on the wage gap in this country um, and how that really just affects people on a day-to-day. Maybe that'll be one of our on-street interviews, just asking people like, do you know what the wage gap is? How much has your pay increased in the, in the last five years? Um, and yeah, it is really tough to have some of these conversations about housing. I actually avoid it at all costs, but you know, Jasmine wanted to do this episode. <laughs> but no, it was good. It was good. Don't to get put a that refresh. on me. <laughs> it was good to get a refresh. Um, and uh, we're excited about our next episode. It'll kind of um, take us back into some of the more personal uh, aspects of urban planning as a career. Uh, so we'll get to a lighter note next. Um, but. Thank you for joining us. We hope you learned something. Um, hopefully you can share with a friend, um, share the podcast. Um, we drop episodes every other Tuesday. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four pod. I said that all wrong. The number four degrees pod. Um, and feel free to shoot us a note, send us a message. Um, tell us what you liked about the episode um, and we look forward to seeing you next time peace out y'all